Hello and welcome to another installment of the Wide Football Podcast with me, Michael Dryden and Etches Adokru. Today, I'm very pleased to say we are joined by Connor Bromley. Connor works for the Daily Mail and is host of one of the oh, podcasts. Daily Mirror. Not Daily Mirror. Da- Sorry. Not having Daily Mail. You'll have to restart that one. <laughs> <laughs> I actually Cracking wrote Daily Mirror. The podcast. I actually wrote Daily Mirror. I would let you off with pretty much any other newspaper. The Daily Mail and the Sun are the two that I would I would have to call you up on. You could have said any other one, not the mail. Do you know what it is? Maybe just continue. I think this is a better introduction. Oh, I no, I am. Just go on. I am. I, d- I don't mind you calling out the, the Mail and the Sun, mate. So. Yeah. I would be calling out your nonsense all day. It's like, no, you're wrong there. You're wrong there. So, uh, so I'm definitely not pausing it. Um, yeah, and is host of um, Mirror's Football Digest podcast. Uh, Connor is formerly, formerly of the Roker Report and Roker Report podcast uh, and is joining us today to discuss Sunderland's turnaround under new owner Kirill Louis-Dreyfus, um, Sunderland's summer transfer business, the season so far on the pitch, and we'll discuss what the future holds for the mighty Black Cats. So, Connor, after what was quite a treacherous intro, uh, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm well. You forgot I worked for Sunderland as well. That was something that maybe... No, no, no. That, no, we were, we were coming up to that. That's a big oh, question. Oh, that. Oh, That's okay. a big question. <laughs> oh, okay. Sorry, I've jumped the gun on that one. There, um, no, I, I'm well. I'm, um, I'm, I'm, I'm doing well, and I'm looking forward to talking about something because to be honest, I don't get to talk about something that much anymore. I mean, the people at the Daily Mirror do not want to talk about League One clubs. Generally, mm. I'm stuck on the the big six. Snobbish. Uh, yeah, a little bit on Newcastle this past week, which hasn't been fun. But yeah, mm. other than that, all good. Yeah, I have to say, me and I just have doing this. I've been running this podcast for probably eighteen months. Going on that. Um, this is the first episode we've done on on the mighty Black Cats because there hasn't been much to talk about as there as you can well there's been a lot to talk about but not much to shout about and for those neutral listeners it would have been pretty dull but today is the day that we're finally rolling out the Sunland episode for Y Football. He's playing it down. He is absolutely ecstatic to do a podcast, an episode <laughs> on Sunderland. So when we started, um, we were we were thinking about doing one for a really long time. And he's been waiting for this one. The prep, everything. This is this is Dryden's time. Because obviously Sunderland are doing really, really well or better than they have done previously. And yeah, I'm, I'm glad this episode has finally come to the fore because it's been um, <laughs> a long time coming. Yeah, you can get out of the way now, Etchie. You can just be like, right, we've done Sunderland. We can't do them again <laughs> until they do something significant. Because to be honest, while the season has started reasonably well, I still wouldn't say it is all that significant. We did lose 4-0 in our last league game. So... All is mm. not particularly rosy. Mm. Well, pretty rosy, but not as rosy as it could be. Uh, I'd say still, well, compared to recent seasons, it's been pretty rosy. I was at uh, Fratton Park last Saturday, and I can tell you it wasn't rosy then. It was absolutely pissing it down for well, basically the whole day. <laughs> they lost yeah. 4-0. So you mentioned it, Connor, before about Newcastle. I have to start with that because it pains me to do so. Even on our only on our first Sunderland pod, I start off talking about Newcastle United. Um but I really want to gauge your opinion as another Sunderland fan, what your feelings are of the takeover. Oof. Uh, you know, I, I read a very interesting article on uh, True Faith, which is the Newcastle fanzine. I don't particularly rate that fanzine, but this article was particularly good. And I think it kind of summed up my feelings um, as well as it could, because I think if, the, if this had happened to Sunderland and Sunderland were in the Premier League and got this takeover, I couldn't stop supporting Sunderland. I mean, I've supported Sunderland. You know, I've seen them get relegated at home against Burton Albion. I've <laughs> seen the League One days and the disasters that they've been of, you know, losing at home to Burton Albion and, and God knows what else. It's it's been terrible. 
But even through all that, I haven't stopped supporting Sunderland, no matter how bad it's been. And while I really think the Premier League should really consider whether or not they should allow people from the Saudi Arabian government to essentially own the club Mm. um, and essentially the Saudi Arabian state to to own Newcastle. The Premier League should not allow that to happen. However, when they allowed Manchester City to get bought by the Abu Dhabi group, the floodgates Mm. would open on this kind of thing. And I, I don't think Newcastle fans should be vilified for being excited about this takeover. I do think, though, that there is massive moral questions. You know, can Newcastle take part in the Rainbow Laces campaign? Can Newcastle United mm. take the knee? Can uh, somebody from the LGBT community go to a Newcastle United game now? Because, you know, I've, one of my closest friends um, is gay and he says, you know, he's, he's in a massive conundrum for that because yeah. how can you knowingly step foot inside St. James's Park when the people who own that club believe that you should literally be stoned to death that is a, a <laughs> yeah. massive moral question. And I don't really envy Newcastle fans on that. And the other thing as well is when the Saudi Arabian government inevitably kills another journalist or has another flat-out PR disaster on the world stage, that kind of falls at Newcastle United's door now. No matter what they do on the pitch, there's always going to be this hanging over them. And they're always also going to have an asterisk over their name that they are owned by the people they are owned by and any success they have will be tainted by that. You've also got on the flip side of that, being a Sunderland fan, I'm actually comfortable with, in in a similar way, Newcastle, comfortable with kind of what we are. You know, we are not a big six club. We are not Manchester United or Mm. Arsenal or Liverpool or Chelsea. You know, we're a team that if it achieves that level of success, it does it through hard work, through good work on the recruitment and good work in your academy. I think by ultimately buying success, you lose a lot of what these football clubs are in a, in a, in a lot of ways. So there's many things to unpack with it. Um, I don't begrudge a Newcastle fan getting excited about it though, and I don't begrudge mm. them turning a blind eye to topics that maybe you shouldn't turn a blind eye to. Um, it's difficult. It's really yeah. difficult to assess. Yeah, a lot. I mean, a lot of fans have been calling for any takeover because obviously the hatred of Ashley and um, <laughs> for a lot of fans, I think they got overly excited and began to believe it was going to be that you know mega multi-billionaire takeover that would lead them to success. And I think a lot of them probably have got drunk on success, which isn't necessarily the right thing for them to do. I mean, HS is an Arsenal fan, so we could probably give like the the other other side of the take in a sense. But I kind of agree with you in that. Uh, I remember, I remember going to old, even when I was like sixteen, went to Old Trafford. I mean, you remember. I think we we drew two two. Kevin Jones scored, and then oh, we got robbed. Kieran Richardson got sent off. Yeah, Kieran Richardson got sent off, and I remember after the game, as a sixteen year old, truly believing that he got sent off on purpose because he didn't want to play the next game and he wanted to go on holiday. I was sixteen, <laughs> but <laughs> uh, then they equalised in the last minute, um, and I thought it was all one big conspiracy. But I remember like leaving the game then and thinking, you know what, like for a United fan, they win every game. They'll be turning to that game thinking. We should beat Sunderland. Losing that game for them would have been, or even drawing would have been so cataclysmic, and the victory would have meant very little. I know there's perspective and there's relativity to it. So if they win the Champions League final, obviously that is amazing for them in the fan base. But so many of their games aren't them Champions League finals and aren't those big games, and they are actually they're actually probably not as enjoyable because the stakes aren't always there. Um, I don't know what your view HS, HS is because you obviously support a club that historically have been. Yeah, I think fans are generally normally very unhappy when their team doesn't do well 
I think there's a level of expectation amongst the bigger clubs. No matter, let me put it like this: Arsenal could field a team of semi-pros, and the fan base would still expect them to win every game. Basically, that's the level of expectation, which is kind of unfair at some of the bigger clubs, and it kind of ruins football in a bit. I'm an Arsenal fan, but I, I actually don't like Arsenal fans that much. As a, I'm one of those types of people. And I think that's because, yeah, there's this element of how much certain games means to them is almost diluted because of the constant success. And when that goes, the demand for it can be almost unfair. I think that would be the comparison on the top six side of it. But, um, yeah, it's hard to say, really. I think there's other clubs in the Prem as well. I think relegation is very sobering obviously, which I'm fortunate enough not to have suffered as a fan. <laughs> but yeah, I think your perspective changes a little bit then. But I wouldn't I wouldn't just say it's a top six as well. I would say there are a few other sides. I think all fans are entitled to some degree. That's kind of how I'd wrap it up. Mm, definitely, 100%. I mean, I would definitely put Newcastle United fans and West Ham fans, you could put in that bracket as well. But <laughs> yeah. not going to cast too many aspersions. So moving on to, to Sunderland, to SAFC, to the topic of today's podcast uh, Connor, we touched your background, so I won't go over it too much because we want to get into the the meat of the of the of today's episode. But you did work for Sunderland. What was your role there, and what happened toward the end of that? Because obviously that was when we were owned by the mighty Stuart Donald and Charlie Methon and Co. Yeah, uh, so my role at Sunderland was kind of initially was to look over the new and improved video and audio content <laughs> brilliant new equipment which they never bought so it kind of just morphed from being a heading up a almost kind of internal fan media probably the best way of describing it so kind of taking mm. back um but kind of doing the content i was doing for rogue reports you know podcasts uh, videos you know talking to fans outside the ground and whatnot um, but very quickly it became obvious that that was not the case. And essentially I got sort of muddled into the old media man route, jack of all trades, does a mm. match report and does the interviews after the game, which is fine. It was good experience, but it wasn't um, what I was really hired for. You know, I was hired kind of to be creative and not mundane. And I think if you, if you know anyone who's ever worked at a football club, uh, it is a, it's a pretty mundane job. You know, you, you, mm. you're feeding out, propaganda essentially happy news everything's yep. hunky-dory positive even when you lose five nil and it's not really what i enjoy doing i'm, I'm much better uh being well creative as i said before um so in terms of working with the the owners at sunland i think when i went in there there was a lot of positivity around the owners um i know there's certain fan websites that that don't or claim that they they weren't you know, necessarily fans of them from the beginning, but the old way, the old did interviews with them. Rogue mm. Report, Wise Men Say, I Love Supreme, all did interviews with the owners and interviews with the managers and, and everything was kind of hunky-dory until pretty much the moment I signed at Sunderland, which was in the February. That's when things started going downhill <laughs> for the club on a PR perspective. I don't think it was related to me, but it was certainly linked. And it was obvious from when I was in there that the, it was a, a skeleton club, not much in the way of staff, and uh, not much in the way of resources academy was obviously brilliant in a lot of ways but you could tell hadn't had money spent on it i mean uh i don't know if if you know how good the academy light is but it is in an elite level mm. training facility I played there, yeah played there a few yeah times. 
it is an excellent facility, but it's literally not. It felt to me like it hadn't had money spent on it in about uh, 20 years, which was roughly when it opened. So the club was kind of like falling apart from the inside. The infrastructure was terrible. The the management systems were were terrible. The you know there was one point where the club didn't have a managing director. We we spent the nineteen twenty season essentially without uh, any sort of direction from above. Mm. Just kind of just do your own thing, and, and that that seeps onto the players. You know we had Phil Parkinson in as well as a manager, and he was just nothing Dyer. about him. You know really really bland. Man. I mean nice enough bloke, but bland. Wouldn't say hello to you if you were walking down the corridor very much not what you'd expect from a football manager. You know, when Jack Ross was there, fair enough, I, was, I had my own run-ins with Jack Ross. I don't think he particularly liked me because of my background. And, you know, there was a few times where I think he was probably a bit too short with me and it wasn't really my fault that I came from where I came from. But at least he had personality. At least he had ownership of the place. It's Phil Parkinson. The moment he walked into that football club, I was like, we all best start applying for different jobs because mm. there's absolutely no way that we're going to get promoted under this manager. He has got nothing about him. And it's a real eye-opener when you're at, you know, working for, for Sunderland, which is a, a Premier League club in pretty much every single sense, and you hire a manager like that who's now managing in the conference. It's it's really, really mm. poor. And I, I kind of went away from the initial conversations I had with Phil Parkinson thinking, this bloke is not going to get Sunderland promoted through brilliance. It'll be luck if it happens. It just, phew. in fact, to be honest, I'd be more worried right now if Sunderland did get promoted with him because they would have had him in the championship and it would be embarrassing. <laughs> so, yeah, I think, I don't even know what the initial question was. I think I just ended up on a little bit of a tirade there, but that kind of sums up what I was doing at Sunderland. <laughs> well, it was just basically asking about your, your time in SAFC. So you went through quite well and there's a great insight. And it kind of like, puts us at the point in the narrative that I want to pick up from and like to give a bit of background to our listeners because a lot of them might not be too versed in our recent history. You mentioned like the Stuart Donald era. A lot of people, doesn't matter who you are, I get a lot of people even at work and wherever that talks to me about Sudden Till I Die, um, the series on Netflix. So many people will probably actually know who Jack Ross is, who Stuart Donald is, who Charlie Methon is, particularly from even from Twitter memes. I'm mm. just, I'm gutted for you, Connor, that you weren't in that room when he had the you know that meme where it's oh they just like the video away. Do you know what is? I'm good. I wasn't in that meme because <laughs> you know I had a good relationship with Charlie Method. I know he's got a lot of bad press and he deserves ninety nine percent of it. But mm. on a personal level, I actually got along with him. Considering we're very different, you know, he's a, a, a essentially a, a posh Tory, and I am dealer. essentially yeah, a, a, no, not a wheeler dealer. He's beyond wheeler dealer. He's a rich wheeler dealer. He's like next level. Um, I am not that. I am a working class northern person who you can imagine is a, a left wing. <laughs> you know, you can see where the, the issues of conflict. But me and mm. him would have arguments all the time. I remember once I was driving with him to Asherton, which is a, a small mining town in Northumberland to uh, support us do. And I remember him being shocked that they didn't sell cigars in the local off license. No way. <laughs> I was just saying, I was like, do you not know where you are? Like, you're in a working class Ashington town with high unemployment. Mm. They're not going to sell cigars at the local off license. <laughs> um, me and him, though, would have kind of arguments all the time. And it, going back to that Netflix clip you were talking about, one of the things I was all, always argue with him about is the entrance music, the music when they run out, and the music at the end. Because mm. 
he changed them things. And my argument to him, and it still is now, is you wouldn't walk into Liverpool and take away you'll never walk alone. So why are you mm. coming in here and changing things because you personally don't like them when you have absolutely no idea the history and how it makes the people feel here? And I found it annoying watching that clip that nobody said that because that was literally the conversation I had with him hundreds of times. One, do you know when we got a Wembley and we played mm. in the Czech Trade Trophy final? Me and uh, Frankie, who's the current uh, like commentator at Sunderland. What, Frankie Francis? Yeah, yeah. we'd <laughs> spoke about, I'd spoken to him beforehand, and I said, look, when we win, or if we win, play the the song we play when we win, which is... Um, I was about to mention that song. I can't. I don't know the. I don't know the name of it. But paint your wagon. I'll paint my wagon. I think it is. So I told him, and he did it, and then he got absolutely bollocked for it because had we won, they would have played that song, and they didn't want that song to play anymore. Um, that's how strongly I felt about that, though. So that Netflix scene there is something that is actually imprinting my brain that does my head, and that nobody said what I was thinking. But the other thing, as well, is that I was technically in the Netflix documentary, and I was talking to you before about this, but I, <laughs> I was in for maybe ten seconds. A couple of times I was in the background as well, but I was in for 10 seconds where it was on my face. Like I was the main event. Mm. And, um, you know, Ryan Reynolds, he's bought Wrexham from that. He enjoyed that my face so much that he <laughs> bought Wrexham Football Club. So Wrexham fans, you can thank me. Football fans, you can thank me for having Ryan Reynolds in the game. And, you know, clearly, clearly he just liked us that much. Yeah, Connor, I didn't realise your name and your face stretched as far as Hollywood, to be first. If I'd known that before or a number of a number of years ago or months ago, I would have had you on sooner. But uh... <laughs> I'm just humble. Nobody knows because I'm very humble. <laughs> so Sunderland were bought by um Carol Louis Dreyfus. Um or the, the takeover was completed, say I think it was February this year. Lee Johnson came in in no in December twenty twenty. Um we actually even though the new owners hadn't came in in time for us to really build or, you know, change the squad in too many ways. I know Carl Winchester came in, someone else came in, there's a couple of other players that did come in. We went on a bit of a run. Luke O'Neill was playing centre-half for most of that time. We did fall short at the end. We kind of fell off a bit, eventually got knocked out by Lincoln City. Um, but then it was really at that summer point where we started to actually feel the effects of Louis Dreyfus coming in his promise of building from within and modernising the club. Uh, Christian Speakman, I know, was appointed well before that, uh, the summer, a sporting director um, alongside a number of other recruits at academy level and in the field of data and recruitment, which in my time of being a Sunderland fan, I don't think I've ever seen the word data put in the same word as recruitment or any other recruitment kind of um, methodology other than just Steve Bruce has come in, he's going to sign some of his contacts. Um, <laughs> um, and then the transfer window starts slowly. This is just me giving some context, by the way, for, for those listeners who don't know us too well. Transfer window started slowly, but then ended very successfully. We brought in a number of young players. Callum Doyle came on loan from Man City. Dennis Certain came in from Spurs on a permanent deal. Nal Hoggins on a permanent deal from Leeds. Then we somehow signed Thorben Hoffman, uh, Hoffman on loan from Bayern and Leon Edijaku from Union Berlin. So, very long-winded intro there. We're currently second. So, Connor, what has impressed you most about the new ownership and are there any concerns if you have any, which I imagine no, based on your experiences with Donald and Co. <laughs> I don't have any concerns about ownership. I mean, I'll start there first. You, you go from having no structure and no infrastructure and now seemingly having structure and infrastructure. So mm. even if the plan isn't right, which I do think the plan is right, but even if it is wrong, at least we've got a plan and there hasn't been a plan for a long time. My main concern probably lies with the manager. I don't have an issue with Lee Johnson and it's certainly not a, a Lee Johnson 
passion that I'm aiming for. However, his career is riddled with streaks. Um, you look mm. at his whole time in management, and it's consistent with win five, six, seven in a row. Then you can lose four in a row. And there's times where they've been, you know, I think they were top the league at Christmas in 16, 17, or maybe in 17, 18, and they end up finishing 13th because the form was that bad, so inconsistent. And mm. we saw it at the end of last season with Sunderland. We were brilliant, and then it got the last eight games, and we basically lost them all. So that, that's a massive concern for me. You know, I, I, I don't know if you can get promoted with that level of inconsistency. I do like what he's done with the team, and I do like the way that the, the team plays. Um, there is a clear identity there, but that that is a, a massive concern for me. Um, in terms of the ownership changes, you know, you mentioned talks about going towards data and, I know Moneyball is something that is often talked about in football, and you've seen that with Brentford is the the most famous example. But Barnsley are also um, a team that's done that and have had success, even if they are struggling this season. If something ought to do that, that's kind of how you you, you stand out. There's there's ways of getting out the league, well, the championship, which is ultimately Sunderland's goal. You can throw a lot of money at it and get lucky, like what Aston Villa did. Uh, Newcastle's done that in the past. West Brom. This season, I'll probably aim for that. Bournemouth, I'll probably aim for that this season. Fulham, I'll probably aim for that this season. Uh, but that has risks, as you see with Derby, who just went into administration. You know, you, you can't just throw money at it and hope for the best. Sheffield Wednesday in our league right now by doing the same thing. So the, mm. the way to do it for me is to be clever about what you spend. And, you know, you mentioned Hoffman, uh, the goalie who we brought in, who we do have a chance to buy at the end of the season. Yeah. We've got that agreed. Um, Dejaku. Which, if it turns out again, we've got a chance to buy him. We've bought a lot of young players in this summer. Um, you know, Niall Huggins looks like a very tidy player when I've watched mm. him play. Uh, obviously, you've got the academy players as well. Dan Neal, who's looked absolutely excellent, and already people are saying he's going to be a big player. Dennis Sergens came in from Spurs, who again, Spurs fans were surprised that they let him go. And, and from what I've seen so far, he's been excellent for Sunderland. You look across the team, there's just been excellent additions across the park, you know, in terms of age, the right age, but also players that have improved us. Ross Stewart actually came in in the January, so technically it was a signing from yeah. the old regime, but he is levels above any striker we've had at this level, including Charlie White, who scored 30-plus goals last season, but Ross Stewart just has something special about him at this level. That's probably the best way of describing it. He, he can run channels, he's quick, he's very physical, very good in the air. He literally does everything you'd want from a, a League One striker. So I've been thoroughly impressed with him. But I think overall now you look at the Sunderland team, compared to the Sunderland team that, that Phil Parkinson was trying to build, um, and it, it's night and day. I mean, God, you look at players like um, Aidan O'Brien, who's still here right now, you know, and, mm. and you think as, that was the recruitment policy last season was, was players like him. And now you look at what we've brought in this year and you go, well, what would you rather have? You know, I know I'd rather have these young players who are hungry and wanting to build a future rather than relying on, you know, championship cast-offs. Cast -offs. You know, I remember we had Conor McLaughlin, who wasn't a bad player, but he certainly didn't move the needle forward. And there's often, when Sunderland's been in this league, we've brought in players that are decent footballers at this level, but they don't move the needle. They don't improve you really in any way. Since we've came down to this level, to when this past summer happened, it was very rare we bought a player that really improved the team. This summer, I think you can see that they've improved the team, but they've also given the chance for the team to grow and, and improve together as a group. And now there's players that 
you know, when you when you watch Sheffield United, for example, a few years ago, come through the leagues. I think it took them three years, got a League One, had two seasons of the Championship, and were in the Premier League. They had players though that were with them through them levels. Sunderland yeah. had never had players though that I looked at and went, "Oh, I can see Aidan O'Brien with us in the Premier League." Oh, <laughs> I, I couldn't see that happening. I couldn't see Tom Flanagan. I know he's playing for us now, but them players that were brought in in the past, you couldn't see them growing with them. But now, if somebody said to me, "Niall Huggins could be a Premier League player," I'll go, "Yeah, I can see that happening." Elliot Embleton, Carabi player, but I could see him in the Premier League. And I'm not saying they're Premier League players now. I'm just saying long term, we have a squad full of players. Where I wouldn't be surprised if five or six were. Premier League players with us if the trajectory worked and in Sunderland have not done that at this level so that's the main thing I've been impressed with there's clearly a plan to to grow the squad as a group together and try and take us through the levels rather than just continually every summer trying to just throw things at the wall and hoping a couple of players stick and turn into diamonds yeah yeah correct I mean because there's other reports to it I mean approach we've had to date has normally been like well We'll sign players that are proven at League One level, or we'll sign players at Championship level. Even someone like Corey Evans, who came in from on a free transfer um, from from Blackburn, Northern Irish international, like he's a good player, but he's he's typified a lot of players that we've brought in. Where oh god, yeah, they've come from a Championship club. They're a Championship quality. Well, if they were Championship quality, they'd be retained by a Championship club. The fact they haven't means that they're not, and there might be other issues like injuries, and they come down as this often issues, or they're not as good as we think they are. Um, but that new approach, as you said, it still takes cash, though, in a sense. I mean, the fact that we, it shouldn't be overlooked that we do have a little bit of cash now compared to what we had before. I mean, we've got an owner that is a billionaire, so I'll say a little bit of cash. Uh, for the league, it's a lot of money, but compared to half the championship and most, or if not all the Premier League, it's it is still fairly modest. Um, it's like Dennis Serkin, prime example, uh, young player, £6 million buyback in his deal from Spurs. So there is, you know, there's we do have to give up something when we sign some of these players. Um, I think Bielsa with Huggins was very happy to let Huggins go because Bielsa is very much a purist and wanted to, Huggins to continue developing and wasn't he didn't have a path at Leeds. Um, but as you say, yeah, it, it shows a desire to build at this level and to go up with with the um, to take the team basically up the leagues as a, as a collective. But it, do you think there's a, a, an issue that with a team that young, it, we could become unstuck and not potentially go the whole way? I mean, we saw I was there as I said, four 0 loss to Pompey that kind of reeked a bit of a team that either hasn't completely gelled together or are just quite inexperienced to manage that sort of occasion? I would, to be honest, to me, that was tactical naivety from the manager. You know, you see that pitch, you, you don't try and play football on it. You you try and do what Portsmouth did and, and you know, kind of go long and, and hope for bounces of the ball. I, I thought it was... Um, I just thought the way that he lined the team up and the way he was trying to play was just silly. I, I, I just think when the conditions are that bad, you throw your plan mm. out the window and you just kind of say, right, okay, this is going to be a battle and we're going to have to battle. You know, you've got Ross Stewart up front who can be a battering ram for you, you know, utilise it. Um, so mm. I think that was more, hopefully Lee Johnson learned a lesson. You know, it, it's all well and good having football philosophies and it's one of the things that does my head in with football philosophies. And I remember Brendan Rodgers was like, this was Swansea years ago. No matter what happened, the stuck to the system of passing it around the back four and then passing it in the midfield and having lots of possession, irrespective of what the game was actually like. The top managers in football and the top teams change. You know, I think about Mourinho's Chelsea back in the day. They were a team that you, if if you went right, we're going to pass 
Mourinho will go, okay, we'll match you. We, we'll do that and we'll be better mm. than you at it. If you want to play physical, oh, wait, we can play physical. So we'll beat you at that as well. You want to play a counter-attack game? Well, we can do that better than you as well and we can make sure that you kind of counter-attack with. That, they're, the, they're the good teams. The teams that just have a philosophy and, and stick to it no matter what. Um, you know, and I think at times even the top level managers have fallen sort of foul to this. You know, I think Pep Guardiola sometimes loses games because he, he is so rigid about how he wants to play. And I, I just think to to be a successful team, you need to be able to win in many different ways. And and that is a concern for me that that Portsmouth game was such a disaster because mm. to lose four 0 against a team that actually hasn't been playing very well simply because you were unwilling to change the way you played. That, that to me is kind of not good enough in that that's a flaw that needs to be worked out through the season because you're not going to win every game 5-0 like we did against Cheltenham in the midweek and where you play like <laughs> football. It's just not realistic. It's not going to happen at this level. So you need to have different ways of winning and that's something that, that they've got to figure out. And that perhaps lends to your point earlier around the form book for Johnson over the years being so hit and miss because perhaps when he... If he doesn't change the way he plays, they get. For example, now if we we could potentially go on a bad run now because that was such a damning defeat, we could potentially go two or three games and it might not be so easy as it has been in recent weeks. I've been walking. I mean, I went to the Cheltenham game last Tuesday. Honestly, God, I've never been to a game where we were so dominant in my entire life. Like it was just outrageous. They they had some players missing, and they are they have just come up from League Two, so you know it, it potentially is the reason why. But um, as you say, that might be why. But I, what I do like about Johnson. They might be this this form guy might go hit and miss. However, what you know, we came from Jack Ross and even under Parkinson where we drew so many games. So I don't think we should take defeats as being the end of the world because for me, a draw at this level when we're playing forty six games and when the, the kind of the the target for what points are going to get you promoted are actually so high. I'm actually okay with losing the odd game. You know, the Burton game a few weeks ago. I'm okay with losing the odd game. It might be really hard to take, and fans hate losing games. Sometimes fans take it so badly. But actually, drawing a handful of games, I mean, you you could play 10 games, you could be undefeated in 10. But if you're drawing seven of them, how many points are you really collecting? Um, so I think I'm fairly comfortable with that. Yeah, no, I would agree. You, you, I mean, that's at all levels. I mean, we've got, we've got an Arsenal fan here, they would say the same thing. You want to win football <laughs> matches, don't you? You don't want to... Yeah, drawing games is almost the worst result because it's just you leave and you're basically where you're at when you end. Um, so there, there is that. You, you do want to win... Um, You've got to be aiming to win probably 25 to 30 games to get promoted. So that means you can't afford to lose 10 games, you know, provided you do get that level of wins. And at the mm. minute, Sunderland, the home form's excellent. Um, could the away form be an issue? Obviously, we've only actually won one away game this season, but we've only played four, <laughs> such as the, <laughs> the, the craziness of the, the fixed list. You don't want that to become an issue, though. But however, if they can win 20 home games this season, then it leaves you with far less to do on the road. Earlier, you touched on certain players being able, you can see the potential path of them being in the Premier League um, as time goes on, hopefully, if something will move up the leagues. Would you say the same could be said for Johnson? So, is he the is he the guy to actually guide? Forget the players that Sunderland have signed and the recruitment, their drive for youth. Would he be the guy, do you think, to actually, could you see him being a Premier League manager, basically? Um, yeah, I've already thought about it. If I'm being brutally honest right now, uh, no, I'd probably say I couldn't see him as a Premier League manager. Um, I think, though, the one thing with Sunderland is is that it's now a head coach, and you've seen with a lot of teams that they can kind of... I mean, Watford's an extreme example, and I wouldn't really want to be like them, but you can kind of, with a 
when you have a, a philosophy of playing that's ingrained within the football club and the recruitment's done outside of the manager, you can kind of slot in coaches without it having as much of a, a damaging effect. The thing with Lee Johnson is, is he? I don't think he has a promotion under his belt. Uh, he's never had sustained success over a season. And I don't know how anybody could think that he could have two of them. You know, if, if he's going to be a Premier League manager of Sunderland, he has to find two of them seasons in probably four years. Mm. But he hasn't done it yet. You know, and he's had ample opportunity when he was at Bristol City. They, Bristol City always had a strong team. I, I would, I would probably say no. You know, I don't see him as a manager who can manage in the Premier League. I mean, that being said, if he if he did sustain it this season and did get Sunderland promoted, then maybe my perspective would change. But right now, I still see the inconsistencies in the way that Sunderland play. And I still, I saw it at the end of last season that everything looked brilliant and they were going to get promoted. It was written, you know, everyone said Sunderland were going to get promoted last season because of how well they were playing. And then they went to teams towards the bottom of the league and lost games. And until he can prove that he's not going to do that, then for me, he will never ever be a Premier League manager. Mm, yeah, no, I agree with that. It's hard to say. I mean, no one would have expected Chris Wilder to be a Premier League manager, and then look what happened. Uh, and probably would have said the same thing about him. But again, if he if he does take us up, and then but Chris Wilder though had success. I think he had promotions under his belt when he went to Sheffield United. Like mm. he had taken, I think Northampton up. That's the thing for me is is Johnson's never actually had any actual success in his career and I say actual success obviously it is still success to have Bristol City punching it at the top half of the championship that is success but he's mm. never ever had you know he's not got a promotion under his belt you know that's that's the knock on him and I think he has had chances to get promotions and I think that's that's why I'm, I'm uneasy about Lee Johnson. <laughs> probably more uneasy than most Sunderland fans are and it's not me saying that you know I, I do hope it works out for him at Sunderland and I don't see a reason why it won't but the streaks it just really, really worry me. Mm. I mean, I just don't think I can ever get Phil Parkinson out of my head, so he'll always be... Oh, God, he's he's Jesus compared to Phil Parkinson. <laughs> so, um, kind of, I know you. I know we, uh, we're running out of time. Um, so there's one kind of theme I wanted to touch on just, before, just to finish. Um, I mean, we've kind of touched on it because we've went through quite a lot. We haven't really touched on players individually for the club because, you know, a lot, a lot of our listeners probably don't necessarily need to know that. But for a club like Sunderland... Our rivals have just been taken over by a multi-billion pound enterprise slash state. Um, it seems that to be successful in the Premier League or in world football now, and when I say successful, I mean like at the top echelons, you have to be or have to have that sort of wealth. Leicester have arguably been a, de- a beacon of light for clubs like us or even <laughs> a club like Newcastle until very recently or other clubs even in the Football League that you can do it without masses and masters of fortune. They've obviously got owners that have money, Leicester. I'm, I'm not saying they don't. But they have done it in a smarter way. So, do you think there are hope? There is any hope for a club like Sunderland uh, for becoming a decent Premier League team? When I say decent, I mean say to top ten. I know it's become more saturated, but top ten Premier League club. I think Leicester kind of give hope to to every Premier, every football fan, not even Premier League, every single football fan. There was that it did give you the hope that it is possible. Um, I would say since that's happened, you can see in everything that the 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 quote unquote big six are doing with their. Super League breakaway and the way that they're trying to, you know, they've tried to manipulate the the qualification for Champions League. They've whereby you get mm. Champions League kind of on your own coefficient. I've seen that banded about. Um, they've spent more money since that's happened. You know, Manchester City brought in Pep Guardiola kind of as a retaliation to Leicester, wouldn't it? Liverpool, of course, have done brilliant with Jurgen Klopp, and now the gap seems 
so much bigger than what it was. And you've seen that Tottenham and Arsenal are prime examples of two clubs that were close to them. You know, Tottenham, uh, Arsenal finished second, I think, the year Leicester won the league. I think Tottenham finished second the year after that. They're miles away now. They literally couldn't be any further mm. from winning the Premier League at the minute. You know, probably the furthest Arsenal have been in the whole history of being a Premier League club is right now. Uh, maybe other than the, the mid 90s when they had managers like Bruce Rioch. But other than that, they, they've been consistently towards the top and the, and the gap's grown so much. And I, I do think now it's going to be far more difficult. You know, Newcastle have obviously had this takeover, but the landscape has changed so much since Man City got their money and Chelsea got their money because everyone has a billionaire owner now. <laughs> you know, everyone has these rich owners mm. that are willing to spend. Look at what Everton have done. Everton have spent fortunes and they've had world-class managers. Carlo Ancelotti at Everton was was massive. You know, and I remember when they got him, I was like, oh, well, Everton need business now. Where did they finish last year? 13th? And then Ancelotti leaves and mm. somehow gets the Real Madrid job. The, <laughs> the, the reality is, is the money, the, the success doesn't necessarily come from money anymore. But if you were in that position, like what the, the big clubs were, they, they've got such a monopoly on it now because they had money at the right time and have been able to invest at the right time that, they're so far ahead of everyone in terms of infrastructure, in terms of, you know, the, the, the finances that they get in the game, whereby even Newcastle now, who've got this Saudi takeover, are probably about £1.5 billion away from even getting close to competing with the big teams. And that is an obscene amount of money that they obviously cannot spend because of all the, the fair play rules that exist in football. So it's so difficult now to break through. And I think it, it is almost became a bit disheartening from where we were when Leicester won the mm. league to have seen where the game has went now. And the hope for, for Sunderland is is that you can do what Brentford's done. That has to be what the, the ideal is for every single yeah. club in the Football League now. Is you, you look at what Brentford's done over the last 10 years and you go, right, they're a small club, traditionally a League One club. Um, and now they're in the Premier League and they actually look competitive in the Premier League. You know, the, the, that game against Liverpool the other week, they were brilliant. Um I saw them beat Wolves as well away from home. And they do look like a genuinely good team. And and that's got to be the model that teams follow. And that, that's the hope for me. You look at what they've done and say, right, okay, we, we can we can mimic that success. That isn't unattainable to do what they've done. Smart recruitment, you know, the, the way they've treated their under-23 squad, well, their B team, which they've got as mm. well, is, is yeah. eye-opening and very, very refreshing as well. So that's what Sunderland's got to do. I mean... As far, I mean, you're supposed to be sort of touched on on Newcastle. Newcastle's going to be very interesting to watch because they're going to have to get so much right off the pitch to have any success. Because Newcastle right now is it essentially a skeleton club, you know, in the sense I said that about Sunderland when I was there. But Newcastle's the mm. same. For a Premier League club, they've got no infrastructure um, to any degree. They don't have directors of football. They don't have any... Well, the, certainly their academy products. They, they haven't produced any top-level academy products for years. I know they've got the Longstaff brothers in at the minute and Paul Dummett, mm. but they're not top-level. Yeah, they're not top-level, <laughs> though. That's what I mean. They're players that play for them, but they're not England internationals, and they're nowhere near being it. So they're going to have to sort all them things out off the pitch, and that, that'll take years to change the identity of that football club, because right now they lose academy prospects to Sunderland in League One. That's how bad their academy mm. is and how bad their training ground is, and it'll take literally years for Newcastle to become one of them big clubs and for their sake you hope that they don't just throw money at it and hope for the best because you've seen what Everton's done 
It hasn't worked. They bought Hamas Rodriguez. Didn't work. They've bought Recarlison for £50 million. It hasn't worked. You know, it's only Yerry Mina is another one that comes up my head. Michael Keane they spent a fortune on. The whole squad's littered with huge outlays that have produced relatively nothing and haven't improved the team compared to where they were when they finished fifth under Roberto Martinez about seven years ago. Mm. It's so difficult. You know, you've got to do the off-the-field stuff. And I think that so many clubs are trying to do the shortcuts. And that goes at all levels. Sheffield Wednesday and League One now, they they try to take shortcuts by just spending money and hope for the best. You know, Aston Villa got lucky when they did theirs, but had they not won that playoff final, probably in League One right now, because they didn't have any money they could spend, they would have been in transfer embargoes. Derby County right now, spent money, didn't have a plan, just thought, yeah, we'll buy the best players we possibly can. They're going to end up in League One. You know, points deductions, administration, might not even be a football club. Football clubs need to learn, they need to be smarter. That That's the main thing. I would say at the minute with football, just be smarter. Mm. No, I completely agree. And actually your uh, use of Brentford, I think is really apt. Probably a better example than Leicester because they are so much further ahead than we, what we are. Um, I went to, I remember going to Leicester against Sunderland when they were in the league. Uh, I don't know if we got relegated that season or season after, but Vardy scored twice. We actually, I thought dominated that game, but Vardy scored twice on the counter. <laughs> and we got, t- got turned over. Um, the Brentford analogy is also interesting because I feel like we're doing that with our first team now. They take, they take good good players from or release players from top academies and put them into their B team. We're almost doing that in our first team at the minute, so it's quite an interesting analogy um, to have. Um, but yeah, thank you, Connor. I know you've got to rush away to a, a gourmet meal this evening. <laughs> a dragon potato <laughs> with cheese, maybe beans if I'm feeling particularly oh. lavish. Cheese and beans, man. Yeah. You can't beat that too fair. It's a standard the missus is out this evening. So uh, <laughs> I was like, I will make jacket potato. <laughs> not a frozen meal, though. So there is that. I could have mm. easily oh, stuck nice. in some fish fingers and chicken nuggets and hope for the best, but I didn't. Yeah, jacket potato, cheese, beans, and the, pap- and the uh, pizza cup all in one evening. All in so one that's, evening. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you really are a Hollywood star. Um, but no... Thank you so much for coming on, Connor, and that insight was brilliant. Um, particularly that a bit on you know what the outlook's looking like for Sunderland. So um, yeah, thank you so much, and good luck with your future endeavours with the Daily Mirror. I must say, yeah, oh, God, definitely not the, the Daily Mirror. But uh, yeah, cheers, Connor, and um, yeah, hope you have a good evening and yeah, good luck to you.